General Schwarzkopf, good morning. Thank you for being here with us. I'm curious, when dealing with, with different militaries from foreign governments and with being stationed in foreign governments, how, being stationed in other nations, how important is it for admirals and generals to be politically skilled as well as tactically and strategically skilled? And how do, how do, you, how do junior officers develop such political skill earlier on in their careers? Um, it, first of all, it's very important. Uh, but I don't think it's a skill that you necessarily train for or develop. I think what you must do is have a basic, fundamental belief in the rights of all individuals to think as they want to think, to, to, to have the cultural characteristics of their nation, and you must have the understanding that perhaps uh, they may be better than you. Perhaps their cultural way may be better than your cultural way. Perhaps their heritage may be better. Now, I'm not saying in everything, not by a long shot. But what I'm saying is you have to meet them on a completely equal footing and be willing to try and understand, try and understand where they are coming from and what the cultural base or what the religious base or what the moral base is for their particular opinion. If you're willing to meet them on that basis, and if you share a common goal, which in, in, the, in the case in Saudi Arabia, of course, the coalition, the, one of the best things we had going for us is ultimately, no matter what the differences were culturally, no matter what the differences were religiously or any other way, there was a common goal there that we could always fall back on. But if you're willing to meet them and work with them and try and put yourself in their shoes and understand where they're coming from, then it's easy to work through. Now, that's not something you teach someone. If someone is fundamentally intolerant, if someone is fundamentally uh, unwilling to allow someone else to have their own beliefs, their own ideals, uh, then they're never going to make it work. They're never going to make it work. So I guess what I'm saying is to anyone who sees himself uh, in that role ever, you know, you must have an open mind to other people's ideas, to other people's philosophies, to other people's cultures, and if you do that and respect them, not necessarily agree with them, but respect their right to have that, then you can make it work. Got the young man in front here in the suit. Uh, good morning, General. Um, I have one uh, qu a quick question. Um, so ever since the success in Iraq, there's been uh, talk and rumors about maybe your promotion to a five-star general, the first since uh, General MacArthur. Uh, do you have any opinions about that? <laughs> <laughs> Why limit it to five? <laughs> I, I said this before, and I, and I honestly mean it. I, I cannot even see myself standing in the shadows of those people that have gone before and been five-star generals or admirals. Um, uh, if you look back historically, the reason why the five-star rank was created was because the people that General Eisenhower had to work with were, in fact, five stars and field marshals in rank, and he was of lesser rank uh, uh, symbolically than they were, and yet he was put in charge of them, and therefore the five-star rank was created for him to have the rank equivalent to those people that he, in fact, was commanding. That's why the five-star rank was created, and, of course, there's no necessity for that right now. Believe me. Uh, I, I've had all sorts of honors heaped upon me by my country, by the people of this great nation that we live in, and that's more than enough for me. I don't need anything more than that. In the very back of the hall. Uh, 
General, before I actually ask my question, I just want to thank you very much and the armed forces of the country for saving me from my worst fear, which is traveling halfway around the world to fight a war. So thank you very much for that. But my, my actual question is, um, General Schwarzkopf, at the end of the war, after that 100 hours, um, we've heard a lot of controversy as to what happened between the political leadership and military leadership of the country. Um, could you clarify exactly what happened? And is your opinion now that things have come out as to the fact that Saddam Hussein still has much more chemical and nuclear capability than we thought? Should we have gone on to Baghdad? Um, let, let me, um, okay, let me see how we can handle this. That's a kind of long, that's a long question for the minute and a half they've let me have. Um, uh, let me start by saying there really wasn't any controversy with regard to the end of the war. The, the only question was on timing, and it wasn't really a controversy, it was just a question. You know, when should we stop it? Uh, I personally think that the correct decision was made. Not only that, but more importantly, my subordinate commanders think the correct decision was made, and an awful lot of the soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines that were out there think the correct decision was made, too. We'd accomplished our military objectives. The military objectives, we'd also accomplished what the United Nations resolutions had told us to accomplish, and that was ejecting Iraq from Kuwait. The only question then was how much longer did we go on with the destruction of the Iraqi armed forces? Uh, most of my commanders, I would tell you right now, felt that, that, that we had come to the point where it was no longer a fight. It was, it was a re rapidly reaching the point where it was just wanton destruction. Now, let me clarify that before anybody walks out here the wrong idea. We've got magnificent fighting men and women in our armed forces today. And one of the things that the commanders that worked under me were proudest of is when we finally got to that situation where the enemy was in complete rout and we could have literally gone in and destroyed and killed and maimed many, many, many people. The young men and women out there deliberately chose not to do that. Those people that were obviously had quit fighting, those people that obviously had laid down their arms, those people that obviously didn't want anything more about the enemy were bypassed. It was the only ones, the ones that continued to fight that our troops were going after. So, so the bottom line is we'd accomplished our objectives and whether we went on for 12 hours, 24 more hours, was, was totally irrelevant with re that regard. Now the next point is there's been an attempt to make a linkage between that and what happened with the Kurds and what happened with the Shias. I don't agree with that at all. Over 50% of Iraq's armed forces were still inside Iraq. The, the, the people that we destroyed, in fact destroyed, within Kuwait. The 42 divisions that we destroyed within Kuwait were in fact destroyed. They were not a major factor in what happened inside Iraq. The only way we could have in any way prevented, if there is such a word, prevented uh, the, the uh, attack on the Kurds and the attack on the Shias would have been literally to do what you say, invade Iraq, go all the way to Baghdad, take over the entire country. Uh, I don't think there's anybody, no one in this entire country nor in the world who at that time was sanctioning us to do that. I also think it's very important to remember that the legitimacy, the legitimacy for the coalition and what the coalition did was United Nations resolutions. If we had then gone on to take Baghdad, take Iraq, that would have really been a violation of international law. That would have been in itself an act of aggression 
uh, compared to what it was we, you know, we were allowed to do, legitimately do, under international law, according to the United Nations sanctions. Now, anybody could be a Monday morning quarterback and say, oh, sure, yeah, but if we had gone on to Iraq, a lot of that stuff may or may not have happened. That's true. A lot of it may or may not have happened. I'm not too sure, though, even to this day, as a matter of fact, I'm quite sure even to this day, that it was not in the best interest of the world for the coalition to invade Iraq, to take over Iraq, to destroy that government, and, and to have ourselves in a position of, of being an occupying power in Iraq, uh, trying to, to undo a great deal of things that are going on right now. Don't forget, it's not over. The sanctions are still in effect. The United Nations uh, inspection teams are still very, very active. Uh, just because Iraq at the present time is trying to prevent us from getting a good hard look at their nuclear equipment doesn't mean that they're going to succeed. And I think that everyone, the United Nations and the President of the United States, have made it very, very clear that that's unacceptable, that that is not going to be accepted by the international community and it's not going to be accepted by us. So I guess uh, somebody once said, it ain't over till it's over, and let's see what happens when it's over. Now, to get back to the Kurdish and the Shia business and Saddam Hussein still being in power, I would only say that the Kurdish problem has been there for a very, very, very long time. I think you all probably know historically that the Kurdish tribe was divided among about four or five different countries. Uh, the boundaries are drawn right to the tribe. Nobody paid any attention to the Kurdish tribal lines, and that's the reason why the Kurdish problem is there. It's been there for a very long time and will continue to be there for a very long time until that problem is solved. The Shia problem with regard to the, between the Shias and the Sunnis has been another problem that's been there literally for over a thousand years and is going to continue to be there. So, although there's no question about the fact that the Kurdish uprising and the, and the Shia fighting in Basra and up the Euphrates Valley was a result of the fact that those people who have had an ax to grind for a very, very long time in Iraq recognized that the central government had been weakened and recognized here, here's an opportunity for us perhaps to address these wrongs. There was not a direct cause and effect where because you know, because we had said to them earlier, go ahead and, and overthrow Saddam Hussein, that that's the reason why they did it. And again, if we had continued to destroy the forces that were in Kuwait uh, and not gone into Iraq, it wouldn't have made any difference in the ultimate outcome of what happened with the Shias and the Kurds. That's, that's the simple fact of the matter. Sure. One last question in the middle there, please. Yes, General Schwarzkopf. What's your best educated guess as to the next flashpoint where some coalition with the U.S. involved has to go out and exert force for the new world order? And what's your best educated guess, not only where it will be, but also what the nature of it will be? Will it be someone with nuclear weapons next time? My best educated guess. Uh, let me tell you, my area is Central Command, and Central Command, um, for those of you who are not aware of it, generally starts on the border between Libya and, um, and Egypt and goes all the way to the border between India and Pakistan, and it includes Afghanistan, and it goes down into Africa to include Sudan, Ethiopia, Somalia, Djibouti, and Kenya. As we speak, as we speak, there are probably at least 11 ongoing wars of one sort or another in the central command area alone. Uh, you compound that by taking the rest of the world, uh, the Far East, uh, the problems that are going on in Eastern Europe, Czechoslovakia, uh, Yugoslavia is a good example, and that sort of thing. Then you compound that by what's going on in South America and Central America, and I would tell you that I think it's absolutely impossible 
to be able to predict where the next flashpoint is going to be. And also, it's certainly impossible to predict whether or not, uh, you know, the coalition or the United Nations or the United States is going to be involved in it. What does that mean? I think it, it clearly uh, sends a signal that, that the type of armed forces we need to have in the United States of America is a contingency-based force, one that is capable of reacting, just as we did to Desert Storm, to any one of this multitude of conflicts that could occur anywhere in the world uh, if it, in fact, threatens the interest of, of, uh, of the United Nations, of freedom, of liberty, or the, the interest of the United States of America. I'm not advocating that, mind you, that we go running off every time to, to a war every place in the world. We couldn't possibly do that because, as I said, there's 11 going on right now. Break, break. What then have we accomplished through Desert Storm? I would like to think that we have accomplished the, the fact that in the minds of any other petty dictator, in the minds of any other strongman, in the minds of any other person out there who has overwhelming military power as compared to their neighbor or their neighborhood, that the world will no longer accept naked aggression against neighbors, that you're just not going to be able to walk in and rape your neighbor because you happen to be bigger or stronger. The world, the United Nations, is going to come together and not let you do that. So I'm hoping that as a result of that, we have reduced the risk in the future, the risk in the future, of, of that sort of thing happening. With regard to nuclear, chemical, biological warfare, that's an excellent question. I personally think it's going to be a long time before an awful lot of these uh, smaller nations, petty dictators and that sort of thing, develop a nuclear capability. I hope it will be. But that's going to very much depend upon the world community. You know, those people don't develop that stuff themselves. I say again, those people do not develop that stuff themselves. They buy it. It is provided to them by people who have forgotten Rule 14, do what's right. It's provided to them by people who are more interested in a quick buck Okay, than the lives of thousands and millions of people in the future that could be destroyed by mass destruction weapons. So I would love to see the world come together the same way we did in the coalition to prevent naked aggression, to also come together and make sure that, that we don't take this technology lightly and we don't allow firms around the world who are interested in making a fast buck export that type of capability to, to people, to anyone who's going to use it. That's the best way to prevent it as far as I'm concerned. But there's no guarantees unless we're all willing, once again, to take the responsibility and work towards that end. Okay? Thank you, Jim.